This morning, congregation, our scripture reading is taken from Isaiah 40. And the words of our text will be verses 6, 7, and 8. Uh, for a bit of context, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 11. So Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, which you can find in your pew Bible, beginning on page 828. And hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He will lead, feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm, and carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. And thus far, for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ in a rather well-known parable we trust as recorded, for example, in Matthew 7, verses 24 and following. Uh, Jesus sets before us a, a picture, a, a contrastive picture of, of two men. Two men building, building a house. Uh, Boys and girls, you probably know this parable that Jesus told. Uh, The one man built his house, and there's a Sunday school song that goes along with this parable. He built his house upon the rock, a solid, stable, sure foundation. The other man, being foolish, built his house upon sand, uh, an unstable foundation. And so you have these two men in many ways, doing the exact same thing, building a house. We might say that the building of the house represents uh, the building of a life. You, you might even press it even further and, and say that this parable of these two men, the one, a wise man, building upon the rock, and the other, a foolish man, building upon the sand, it represents two contrastive worldviews. And so there they were, day after day, week after week, month after month, building, constructing 
uh, the houses of their lives. And they experienced what we all experience in life. The rains came, the, the storms of uh, afflictions and of trials, of temptations, and everything else that makes up the very fabric of our daily and our weekly lives. These two men experienced those things together. And yet the result, the result was an absolute contrast for the house, the life, the worldview of the foolish man being built upon the sand of his own imagination or his own uh, mental uh, abilities crumbled. Whereas the house or the life or the world view of the man who built upon the rock stood even in the midst of all of those times of trials and afflictions. I would submit to you that all of us are builders. Maybe you're a young boy of only six or eight years old. You're building something. You're, you're, you're building a life. You're, you're building who you are. What you're going to do. Maybe you're uh, a, a young lady of 16 years old. You also are building a life and an identity. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of your years, or at least what we often refer to as the middle of our years, and we do well to be reminded that none of us know the length of our days. But maybe we find ourselves in what we believe is the middle of our life. We continue to build a life, and perhaps we find ourselves near the end of our earthly journey. We continue then also to construct a legacy. We do this as individuals, but also as families. And so we can think not only of building an individual life, but also of a, of a family life as we engage in uh, interpersonal relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents, grandchildren, and then by extension into all of the relationships that make up uh, the activities of our life. We can also say that we are building, we are building a house even as a congregation. We together as a corporate body, many yet one, we're building a house. And the important thing is that we have a solid foundation. And that solid foundation is especially crucial because of the brevity and the frailty of human life as our text will set powerfully before us this morning. And so this text is chosen as we begin our ministry among you uh, so that I might, Lord willing, be powerfully reminded of the necessity of building all of our work here in this congregation upon the sure, solid rock of the foundation of the Word of God. And that we together as a congregation might know this is the difference. This is the essential difference between congregations that thrive and prosper and flourish and congregations that wither away. Whether or not they build upon the authority of the Word of God alone. And so we will consider this morning using the words of Isaiah 40, verse 6-8, through 8, with this theme, the frailty of humanity. Noticing, first of all, the proclamation of the frailty. And then secondly, the reason for the frailty. And then third, the contrast to the frailty. So the frailty, or you might, if you want a synonym, the weakness or the temporary nature 
of humanity. Notice, first of all, the proclamation, then secondly, the reason, and then thirdly, the contrast to this frailty. We have then the proclamation of this frailty. Isaiah's ministering in the 8th century before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at a unique time in the life of the covenant people of Israel, a time in which they are enjoying a certain measure of prosperity in the context of surrounding nations also rising in power. Uh, This is, you might say, uh, just prior to the experience of the exile and all of the humiliation that will come upon Israel during that exile as God chastises His people. Uh, But things, you might say, are are going okay for Israel uh, in the context that we have. Uh, And the Lord is going to speak to Israel. And He's going to speak to Israel through His prophet Isaiah. But the question comes, what shall I say? What shall I say to this people, to this covenantal people that are enjoying a measure of external prosperity and perhaps have a sense of self-reliance based upon the appearance of external prosperity? And the Lord, notice, and we always point this out because we believe this is very important for us to pay attention to, notice that the entire context here, the Lord is in all capitalized letters within our translation. This is the covenantal name Yahweh. The Lord says, and you'll notice that this is also reiterated in verse 1, says, your God. God has not forgotten His people. God has not forgotten His covenant. He is a faithful Lord God, even in the times of the appearance and the approaching of exile and affliction. Isaiah comes and in essence says, what shall I say to your people? And the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, says this is what you are to proclaim. Proclaim to them the frailty of mankind. Proclaim to them the frailty of man. In contrast to the absolute sovereignty and supremacy of the Lord God. Now, now think just briefly with me this morning. Lord Yahweh, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who promises and never forgets. Uh, Notice how different that is than mankind. We are always changing. Even though we, we, we try as much as we can to stay the same, or perhaps we try uh, to roll back uh, the clock upon uh, the, uh, the impact of aging, we change all the time in our very appearance, uh, and in our opinions, and in our ideas, and in our knowledge. And gradually, time takes its toll as we pass quickly upon the stage of human history. What is the life of man? Perhaps 70 years, if by reason of strength, 80 years? But what is the boast of those 80 years? For the most part, sorrow and trouble. And then man quickly flies away to his eternal home. Notice the difference. Behold your God. He never changes. In His being, in His promises, in His plans, and in His person. And that is the message that the Lord would have Isaiah give to the covenant people. 
Uh, in an absolute contrast to the worldview, which is really nothing new, of some type of humanism where man is exalted, and we use man there in a generic sense of the word, where, where man is the pinnacle of all. And this is especially important for us to hear in our own day, uh, as nearly uh, every single media outlet uh, and every single, it would seem, a literature form, and every single academic institution will proclaim to us the inherent potentiality of man. In contrast, the Lord says to His servant, proclaim to Israel the frailty of mankind. Do you notice something of the countercultural message that the church has? There the whole realm of the world is proclaiming and celebrating man's greatness. And the church comes humbly before its God and says, what shall we cry out? And the Lord says, this is what you shall cry out. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades away. And congregation, one of the most important things for us as individual persons, but also as a congregation, and this may come across rather blunt, allow me to explain, is for us to be put in our proper place. Because as a result of the fall, we have an inherent tendency to self-congratulation and of arrogant pride. And perhaps this is most important for the man behind the pulpit to hear. Remember, all flesh is like grass. Grass can be green, it can be vibrant one day. But then you cut it, and you allow a couple days to go past, and it withers, and it's brown. That's something that we need to remember. As perhaps we return to our places of employment, to positions where we think we are a certain member of prominence, This is something we need to remember also as we return to the academic institutions of learning. What shall I cry out to these people, Lord? Tell them all flesh is like grass. Notice the comprehensive nature. It's not some flesh is grass. All. All of the human race is like the grass of the field. Well, what exactly does this mean? Well, that ties into our second point as we consider the reason for the frailty. What does it mean that all flesh is like grass? It simply means this, that that humanity, and again, if you want to consider this as an individual person, to take one person and their life and then their their, their being, or if you want to take this in a collective way, uh, humanity as a nation or as an empire, it simply ties in with what Ecclesiastes says. Vanity of vanities. Uh, that doesn't mean everything is meaningless. It, it rather refers to the transitory nature 
uh, of human existence. Now, you might say maybe you're an eight-year-old boy sitting here this morning and you just heard the minister say something about the transitory nature of human existence. And you think, I don't even know what that means. I want you to think of a simple analogy. Have you ever tried to catch a bubble? Boys and girls, have you ever tried to catch a bubble in your hand? Now, I don't know, but I think every single time you try to do that, the bubble will pop. The minute it touches your hand. Now, I know there's probably a boy in the congregation who says, well, actually, once I caught it. Could you hold on to it and put it in your pocket and take it home? No, the minute you grab it, it's gone. And that's what we mean when we say all flesh is like grass. It's what James refers to in James 4, verse 14. For what is your life? It is even a a vapor that appears for a little time and and then vanishes away. And James mentions elsewhere uh, in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, as a flower of the field, he that is the rich man, that is the, the apparently strong and successful man, the man in the community that everyone looks to and says, wow, he has really made something of himself and he has really made something of his life. Look at how he has prospered and advanced himself in his uh, position of influence. James says, as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. Uh, Now I have to admit, coming from Michigan, the crops here in Iowa look absolutely amazing. But we also acknowledge that we are in the midst of something of a drought, something of a dryness. And you can see the evidence of that, perhaps, uh, if you have an unirrigated lawn. Uh, that which used to be so green and so filled with vibrancy of life now begins underneath the oppressive heat that we've experienced uh, in, in recent weeks and underneath the constant downbeating of the rays of the sun, all of that greenness, all of that vibrancy uh, is simply eliminated. And the grass that once was so green quickly turns brown. And you can apply this uh, to the world's greatest. Whether it be individual persons, you can think of uh, the actors uh, who one moment are at the height of their acting career, demanding enormous paychecks, and the next year are forgotten. Or you can think uh, of the athletes whom we sadly so often idolize. A one moment they can be at the height of their career, setting and breaking records. And the next moment they are completely forgotten and the records that they have set are obliterated by those who come after them who set even greater records, accomplishing even greater feats, only to be outdone by those who come after them. And you can think of inventors. You can think of uh, the influential persons in the realm of commerce and of trade and of industry. Oh, where is Rockefeller today? Where is Edison today? Perhaps their names are remembered uh, in the history books, but by and large we have forgotten them uh, and of their contribution. Uh, You can broaden it out and uh, think of the great empires. Where is the empire of Egypt today? Uh, where are uh, the Babylonians? 
Where are the Medes and the Persians? Where are the Assyrians? Where are the, the Romans with all of their military might able to absolutely trample and annihilate any foe who stood in their way? Or if you want to fast forward, uh, perhaps even to a history that some of us can recollect in an experiential way. Uh, where is the Third Reich uh, with its military power? Where, where is the Soviet Union? And the answer is, they're gone. Gone because of the truth of the transitory nature of humanity, whether individually or collectively. And there is, by the guidance given us by the Word of God, there is a powerful lesson to be learned as we scan the course of human history. And that is that persons rise and fall. And that is that nations rise and fall. And this is part of what the Lord would tell His covenant people. Persons and nations rise and fall. They do so according to the sovereign purposes of the Lord God. But in the midst of the rising and the falling of the nations and the transitory nature of humanity, the wise, those who build their life and build their worldview upon the authority of the Word of God, they take notice of this and they say, yes, indeed, they echo, you might say, the words of Scripture and they say, yes, all flesh is like the grass. And so the wise, they, they do not build their homes upon the ideas of man. They do not build their homes upon the philosophical structure that is given by a secular academia person. But in contrast to that, they build their homes, their lives, their worldviews upon the solid rock of the foundation of the authoritative Word of God. But we ought to consider why humanity vanishes. This is important because we might be tempted to think, as every world empire has thought, oh, but we can do it differently than a former generation. And so you can, you can still here today, with the advancement of a socialist agenda, and objections are brought up. Well, if you look historically, socialism doesn't work in a fallen world. And the answer often given by the advocates of socialism is, oh, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to succeed because we're going to do it differently. And at times you can, you can take a young person or an older person and you can, with love, and it must always be done with love, but you can, you can talk to them. You can say, you know, you're building a worldview based upon sinful misunderstandings. And they'll say to you in essence, but I'm going to do it different. I know it led to death and destruction for hundreds of thousands of persons before me, but I'm going to pursue a narcissistic way of life differently. I'm going to pursue some type of hedonistic life differently. I know that for many, uh, the sins of idolatry or of adultery or of homosexuality have ended up with a pit of emptiness and the condemnation of God. But I'm going to do it differently. 
And the answer to that lie is, the outcome will be the same. Because what brings about the frailty of man is the breath of God. Notice what verse 7 says, the grass withers, the flower fades. Now remember, this is all symbolic imagery of the fleeting nature of humanity. Why does the grass wither and the flower fade? Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Because the breath of the Lord and breath there is symbolic uh, of the Word of God. And you see something of this in Isaiah uh, verse 24, rather Isaiah 40 verse 24. Scarcely shall they be planted, speaking again about what we might call secular idolatry, uh, humanity. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when He will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Uh, You can think, for example, also uh, of Job 4, uh, verses 8 and 9. Even as I have seen uh, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of His anger they are consumed. And speaking about the great cosmic culmination of all things in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the Apostle Paul says, and then the lawless one, speaking about the Antichrist, about that final manifestation of the powers of humanity against Christ and against God. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. And so sinful man... And again, we use that term generically, whether this be an individual person, male or female, or a collective group of persons. Sinful man who set themselves in opposition against God perish because of the Word of God and because of the condemnation of the Word of God, because of the sentence of the Word of God, that those who sow wickedness reap destruction. And this is an eternal truth. An inescapable reality. You and I will not live forever in our temporal existence, but we will have to face the judge of all the earth who will do right and who will judge in absolute righteousness. And Paul reminds the Galatians as we remind ourselves this morning, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. If we sow a life of building upon the foolish foundation of sand of our own imagination, we will indeed reap condemnation. But if we sow a life of humble repentance and faith, building upon the authoritative Word of God, seeking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will indeed receive the blessing of eternal life. And so you might simply sum up the second point. Mankind's proud glory is frail and fleeting because the Lord God cuts down sinners with a simple, quick word of His judgment. Now we dare not say amen on that note, and so we transition into our third point, the contrast to the frailty. Yes, God's Word is a word of judgment and condemnation, but it's also a word that gives life. It's a powerful word. Uh, that's, first of all, the contrast. Man, man loves to speak, but he does not speak with any power. 
Imagine the foolishness of the man who would stand into the existence of nothing and say, let there be light. Nothing would happen. Because man has no inherent power. By contrast, the triune God of heaven and earth says, let there be light. And what is the result, boys and girls? And there was light. And God divided the day from the night. When God speaks, things happen. And not just in the realm of the initial creative work of God, but continually, when God speaks, things happen because His Word is an authoritative Word, a a powerful Word. And so, and one of my professors always said, you, you, you should have in humble dependency upon the sovereignty of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, you should always have a goal for your sermon. And I thought about that last night and this morning a bit. Well, what would my goal for this sermon be? Uh, it's a twofold goal, I believe, that we would leave this sanctuary recognizing our own frailty. Being humble before God. But not just that. That we would also leave this sanctuary and from that posture of humility before the Lord God, that we would leave this sanctuary knowing also that our God's Word is authoritative and it is powerful. In the words of the author of Hebrew, that it is quick and powerful and that it accomplishes the work of the Lord God. Now, you certainly uh, could summarize various aspects of the Word of God, the precepts, the commandments, etc. But the focus in this chapter, Isaiah 40, you'll notice in verse 1, this chapter has the emphasis upon the Word of God that is the covenantal promises of God. And so God says through His Word to His covenant people, comfort. And so oftentimes, Isaiah 40, verse 1 is chosen as a scriptural text for the first Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism in our tradition because that theme of comfort runs all throughout the Heidelberg Catechism as I trust you well know. And this is what the Lord wants the covenant people to hear. In contrast to the frailty of humanity, there is comfort. Comfort because God has established a relationship with His people in and through Jesus Christ. And that's why there is this remarkable uh, exhortation to the people of Israel. Uh, as you see it in verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, you who have received the Word of God, go forth into the midst of the nations as a light and a salt Uh, And say to the cities of Judah, that is, say to your fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Behold your God. Notice, it's not behold your fellow man. It's not look at what this secular expert can do or say. It's not what this organization can do or say. It's not what this empire can do or say. It has nothing at all to say about behold your fellow man or behold the evolutionary advancement of human society. See, that's sadly far too often where we look. What can we do for ourselves? What can others do for us? What can this organization or this association do for us? Whether it's the League of Nations, uh, whether it's something else, in contrast 
Israel, the church, the Christian, behold your God. And of course, all of this Word of God is centered upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know well, I trust, how John begins his account of the Gospel. Speaking about the Word. The incarnate Word. And I want to ask, as we begin to draw to a conclusion, when you think about the incarnate Word, when you think about Jesus Christ, what are your thoughts? Well, what were John's thoughts? And we beheld His glory. Do you see the connection? We beheld the glory of the incarnate Word tying into the end of verse 9, Behold your God. John says, in essence, we did behold our God as He came to us in the incarnation. And we beheld our God. And I ask if this is your view of Jesus Christ, full of grace. Grace upon grace. Now, I'm not overly homesick, but when I do think about Michigan, you can't really help but think about the Great Lakes and about Lake Michigan. And I borrow this analogy from another minister. When you think about grace upon grace, which we have received in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, you think about the waves on a lake similar to Lake Michigan. One comes after another. And boys and girls, these waves, and it's not just, of course, on Lake Michigan, could be on the ocean. These waves have been coming for hundreds of years. And they continue to come. And so the grace of our God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We beheld His glory. The glory of Christ. Full of grace and of truth. And we received out of that glory grace upon grace. Forgiving grace, enabling grace, empowering grace, restoring grace, enlivening grace. Church of Jesus Christ, behold your God. And place all of your confidence, all of your trust, and all of your hope upon this sure, solid foundation of the promises that are found in the Word of God. Don't build for a moment upon the shaky, unreliable foundation of man. That will only end in destruction. But build rather upon the Word of God. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, uh, we do humbly confess our own fleeting nature. We have been reminded of that this morning and we pray that that reminder might impact us that we would not boast in and of ourselves but that we with humility of heart would look outside of ourselves unto You and unto Your Word especially the incarnate Word and the written Word that testifies of that incarnate Word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know that no human instrument Even a preacher of the Gospel can accomplish the transformation of hearts. But we do know that Your Word can accomplish the transformation of hearts, and we ask that it would do so also this morning, so that Your name might be glorified, and that we might be transformed 
We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.